Well, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. We'll be closing out our study of this letter from the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, that'll be on page 946. Go ahead and read through the chapter. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instructions in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in his book, The Constitution of Knowledge, footnote, I often recommend or mention books up here that I don't necessarily recommend or agree with everything. But in his book, The Constitution of Knowledge has many good things. I don't recommend everything from him. Uh, Jonathan Rausch, though, he draws on this vast study of how people come to believe things. Uh, Quoting one study, he writes this, People are like bees, and society is like a beehive. Our intelligence resides not in individual brains, but in the collective mind. To function, individuals rely not only on knowledge stored within their skulls, but also stored elsewhere in their bodies, in their environment, and especially in other people. When you put it all together, human thought is incredibly impressive, but it is a product of a community, not of any individual alone. Because of this vast body of study that has been seeing just how communal our thought life is, Yale psychologist and law professor Dan Cahan has argued for what he calls identity protective cognition. Uh, Here's what it means in short. He says that our thinking is constrained by our need to protect our identity within a particular group. Uh, So, once a belief becomes important to the way we think about ourselves, 
and to our relationship in a particular group that we identify with, changing it is very costly. So much so that research has found that partisan identification actually affects our memory, our unconscious judgments, even our perceptions. People are more likely to remember falsehoods which support their partisan identity. On and on the studies go. Um, But the challenge then is this, is whenever we hear things, we filter them through our group, our thinking groups, our hives, you might say. We all have cognitive biases. We all participate in groupthink, whether it's cultural, political, biblical, theological. We, We all are shaped by groups that we are a part of, whether we acknowledge it or not. There are a myriad of things that we believe, not because we've personally bottomed out the study on those topics, but because we trust this or that person and that group. For example, I know it's hard to believe, but there are groups of people, whole groups of people out there, who believe that pineapple does not belong on pizza. I say a pox on them. Okay, (laughs) obviously that's not quite the same thing because we're dealing with personal tastes. But seriously, I'm sure some of you have known brilliant people who 95 or 99% of what they believe, you just think this person is a genius, but they have that one quirky little thing that just throws you. Or maybe there's someone you've found has been an incredible help to you in so many areas, but then they change their view in one area, and you, for the life of you, cannot wrap your head around how they change their view on that one particular issue. I'd be willing to bet that if you ask enough questions, they found a new hive. They they found a new group that they also began to trust in, and it shifted their thinking. Well, here's why I bring this up. Because as we bring our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians to a close, the communal nature of thinking as a theme will hopefully help to tie together some of the loose ends in this book. As I've been saying, as we've walked through this epistle, the agitators, those stirring up trouble there in the churches in Galatia, uh, they had been trying to convince the members of these churches to join their hive, to join their way of thinking, particularly about the Old Testament and the believer's relationship to the law. And I've said roughly, you can break this letter up into kind of three sections. In the first two chapters, you have this historical setting where Paul recounts the fact that He doesn't have a hive. His hive, where he got his gospel from, was the risen Christ himself. He didn't learn it from a man. It came from Jesus. So if you're going to belong to a group, that's the group to belong to. And yet he also acknowledges that it's easy to be caught off guard by other groups, which is why he corrected Peter, who had also been caught off guard by joining his thinking to another group. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul goes after the heart of their argument in the fact that they were misreading and applying the Old Testament. Uh, See, the the agitators there were saying that the way to receive the blessings of Abraham, the way to inherit the promises to Abraham, was by keeping the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Law Covenant. But Paul showed them in those two chapters that a right reading of the Old Testament actually shows us that the promises and blessings of Abraham were always aimed at those who would have faith in the true blessing of Abraham, the true seed of Abraham, Christ himself. Uh, Any other reading of the Old Testament is to skew it. Then, in these last two chapters, Paul seeks 
to demonstrate that Christians are those who live in this new creation time, this new creation age of the Spirit. The, the age to come has broken into time, and so those who participate in the Spirit are the ones who've been made alive and are to walk according to the Spirit. And that means, as we'll see today, that all boasting in anything other than Christ and the Spirit and the new age is futile. It's empty. And so our sermon title this morning is The Believer's True Boast. <clears throat> and we'll walk through this passage on the three points of sinning and carrying, sowing and reaping, warning and following. Let's look again at verses 1 through 5, shall we? <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. So Paul writes to these churches here, and he speaks of anyone caught in a transgression or caught in a sin. Uh, Paul is writing to the churches there in Galatia. Uh, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, he reminds us that Christians are to keep an eye on, to help and judge those in the church, not those outside of the church. Rather, we're called to lovingly and gently restore those who are caught in sin. Our fellow members in the local body, if someone gets caught, now that word caught uh, speaks of sin having this surprising element to it, sneaking up on you, as it were. Uh, see, not all sin is like it was in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you kind of see a process where Eve seems to rationalize her sin. She even explains it to the serpent, does she not? Well, you know, we're not even allowed to touch that tree. Are you sure? And he slowly convinces her. You know, to use the opening illustration, the serpent has her join his hive. He rationalizes her into sinning. And then once his wife has shifted over, then Adam happily joins in with this new hive. But not all sin is like that. Uh, sometimes sin catches you. It sneaks up on you. Uh, Luther said it this way. He said, sin is like a man's beard. If you shave it off today, it'll be back tomorrow. Or think of it as Genesis 6-5 put it, is that every inclination and the thoughts of our hearts are always evil, tainted with evil. That's why Paul can say sin catches us. Sin is not always this rational thing. So if you're anything like me, friend, uh, pride is not something I ever sit and think through. Well, I think I'm going to be proud compared to that person today. Uh, no, what, what typically reveals pride in my life is someone else, whether it's my wife or my daughter or one of the other members of this church, gently asking a question. Is that right? And it helps me to see that I've been caught, as it were, in sin. So see, Paul's exhortation here is that our goal as church members is to gently restore the one who is caught in sin. Uh, not to put them on blast, as the kids will say today, but to seek to restore them. We do not confront them with a secret knife waiting to stick it in. No, we, we are seeking to join together, have this person be healed. We seek to help them in their thinking that they're being influenced from somewhere else. And Paul calls this helping another Carrying their burdens, or other translations, I say bearing one another's burdens, is how we help someone. 
Uh, Paul uh, will also then says this is allowing, or Peter rather, refers to the same idea as love covering a multitude of sins. Uh, this idea is not that we cover over sin, but that we gently seek to restore the person who's been caught. If we do so, Paul says here that this fulfills the law of Christ, which seems to refer to the twin commands of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself. So notice what he's saying here, the fulfillment of the whole law, contrary to the agitators who want you to eat the feasts and get circumcised and and obey all the high holy days and everything. He says, no, it is really bound up with loving one another and gently restoring each other when we're caught in sin. In fact, that, that fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens is the hinge on which these first five verses turn. Everything is, is spinning on those, which is why it ends with that warning. But be careful when you restore someone that you are not tempted yourself. Uh, here's why. is because when you go to help someone else, you could potentially be tempted by that sin you're trying to help them with. Or uh, it, it could be that you end up judging that person. That's why these verses can sound a little contradictory if you catch it. At first, it talks about bearing or carrying one another's burdens, and it says you carry your own burden. Well, which is it, Paul? (laughs) Are we bearing others or are we carrying our own? And he's saying both. It's both and. The idea being is that if you're carrying someone else's burden by gently restoring them when they're caught in sin, you have to be careful that you don't end up judging them because you have your own burden of sin too, and you need help as well. Our ability to restore others, then, will flow directly from what we think of ourselves. If we think highly of ourselves, we'll tend to look down on others that need our help. If we think too lowly of ourselves, we might be envious of others. And that's why some commentators have helpfully noted that really these first five verses are further unpacking the last two verses of chapter 5, which say, "...since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit." Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So by living in step with the Spirit, we're gently restoring the one who's caught in sin. We're not provoking the other one, oh, I'm the one helping you with your sin, or envying the one who seems further along. No. Each one of us needs to test our own actions, verse 4 says. Unfortunately, though, I think it's missing a very important conjunction. The ESV is better, but let each one test his own works. That draws out the fact that we dare not deceive ourselves when we help someone else. When we're helping them, but be careful, test yourself. Make sure that you aren't getting caught in sin as well. So let me illustrate it this way. It is possible to be so busy helping other people that we ignore our own issues. Have you ever seen the movie The Dream Team? I think it was 1989 or something. Christopher Lloyd, uh, he plays this obsessive compulsive germaphobe who's, who's in therapy And at one point, he's constantly turning in everybody else in his group therapy to the doctor. And the doctor finally says to him, you realize that by always focusing on everybody else's problems, it's just really a way of avoiding your own. And Christopher Lloyd says, yes, exactly. (laughs) He knows by focusing out there, he doesn't ever have to look in here. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, friends, to, to love others, to fulfill the law of Christ, we help. We help them bear their burden. But we don't do so to the exclusion of realizing that we still continue on in sin. And he also warns, we dare never think then we have arrived. (laughs) There is no perfection this side of the consummation. That's why verse 5 says we need to keep continuing on. 
In the context of the letter, then, here's why he gives this warning. Remember, these agitators were doing the the line of, hey, I'm circumcised, how about you? Why you would ever brag about that? I still can never wrap my head around it. But that's what they were doing, going around nudging people. I mean, are you in the circumcision group? Are Are you part of the club? And he says, time out. They're boasting in their flesh. They're comparing themselves to other people. But that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Now, insofar as we're bearing each other's burdens and fighting sin ourselves, we're helping each other to fulfill the law of Christ together because we're boasting in what he has done, not in what we do. The difficulty, of course, is that we all have blind spots. We all have those areas where we need someone else to come alongside and help us. Maybe one of the most vivid examples of this from the Bible is found in David's life. David had sinned against everybody, against Bathsheba, seducing her, having her husband murdered, Uriah, against the soldiers who he made complicit in their crime, against the whole nation by abdicating his leadership. So the prophet Nathan comes to him, and he gently seeks to restore David. He doesn't come to him with a hammer. He comes to him with a story, gently seen. And he tells David the story about a rich man who has all sorts of sheep and a poor man who only has one. And this poor man's sheep is like a part of his family. And when a visitor comes into town, the rich man steals the poor man's sheep and kills it and gives it to the guest. David hears this and is outraged. This is unjust. And then Nathan seeks to help him carry his burden. You are the man. David had done everything to justify his sin. Uh, he, he, He thought he got away with it. When he didn't get away with it, he had the guy killed. But all of a sudden, someone had helped him. And now he finally repents. He finally admits, I have sinned against the Lord. So see, the question, friends, is this. How do we respond when someone helps us carry our sin? How do we respond when someone tries to gently show us an area where we need to press on in repentance? See, as paradoxical as it may sound, one of the most practical helps for fighting sin is to continue to meditate on God's immeasurable greatness and on just how dark our sin is in contrast. Uh, One theologian put it well, pride will find little opportunity to grow in individuals who are constantly contemplating God's greatness, holiness, power, and supremacy versus their own weakness, sin, failure, and inability. See, friends, not only pride, but all kinds of sin Part of the way we fight it is together, meditating on how great God is together and seeing how we fall short. Uh, so friend, get a copy of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Read it with a friend. If, you, if you've read that one, get Terry Johnson's The Identity and Attributes of God. Or if you really want to hurt yourself, get R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God and read that with a friend. Meditate on the glory of God. It will cause you to see the blind spots a little clearer. And when someone comes along to help you, it'll help you to see that this person actually loves me. They're not trying to stick a knife in. See, perfection is unattainable. But the question is, Paul's going to go on to say, what are we sowing and reaping? So that brings us to our second point. Look at verses 6 through 10. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So I think that uh, ten, 6 through 10 form the next paragraph. Uh, 6 has kind of a transitional flavor to it. But I think it all hinges on this sowing and reaping. Notice the logic of how this works out. First in verse 6, Paul writes that those who are taught the word need to support and provide for the ones who are teachers of the word. Now, this command is important in the Galatian church because there's a tendency, perhaps, for them to overcorrect. What Paul has just been writing them to about, very fiery in this letter, is how they have been caught by these false teachers, by these agitators. So perhaps their their tendency is going to be to overcorrect away from those false teachers and say, we can do this ourselves. But Paul won't have it. He says, no, 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 you need teachers. God's word makes it abundantly clear that a local church needs elders who are gifted for and devoted to the task of proclaiming the word. That's why Paul would write about this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So in essence, Paul writes this first warning to the churches about make sure you provide for good teachers because don't be once bitten, twice shy. Just because you got snookered by the false teachers doesn't mean you can give up on teaching. However, After telling the church that they need to provide for their teachers, he immediately warns the teachers in verses 6 and 7. Technically, that or 7 and 8 rather, that that stern warning is to the teachers. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever those teachers sow, they will reap. Uh, If a teacher is sowing primarily for material benefit, then he's going to sow to please their flesh. Whereas if they're sowing to please the Spirit, they'll reap eternal life. So this, this flows within other passages which talk about and give warnings to teachers. Uh, one of them is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, where Paul offers a warning to teachers, to gospel ministers, about how they are to build. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Paul writes, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer suffer loss and yet will be saved even though only escaping through the flames. Uh, Paul's writing about ministers of the gospel. In that context, it's Peter and Apollos who built after him on that foundation. So as with the warning here, he is saying, teachers, be careful what you sow. Be careful what you build. Are you sowing to the spirit or to the flesh? Now, this is what Paul gets at here, but then he immediately applies it to the church as well in verses 9 and 10. So the sowing and reaping is not only for the pastors and the teachers. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we all will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family 
of believers. So see, the application starts with the teachers, and then it flows to the whole rest of the church. So this idea of reaping and sowing. I wonder if you're visiting here this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, and maybe you hear this concept of Paul saying you will reap what you sow, and I wonder if you think that sounds a bit like karma. Uh, now, whether it's a westernized version of karma or not, I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, the traditional karma was bound up with the cycle of reincarnation. It was a long-term thing. You sowed now to reap in the next reincarnation. But in the West, we can't wait for anything. That's why we have fast food, and that's why we have Netflix and everything else, because we can't wait. So we've instantaneized karma, and we made it this immediate thing. Uh, so whichever version, though, what Paul's doing here is very, very different than karma. Because here's what Paul is saying here. Regarding sowing and reaping, in karma, it's always sown against someone else. That's why you'll see the, the memes or something on the internet of somebody cuts somebody off and gets in a car accident. Hashtag karma. It's always against that other person. In the Bible, notice what he said. God is not mocked. All sin is against God. If you sow to your flesh, it's because you're denying God. Sin is always against God. He is the most offended party. Cut off someone in traffic. Pridefully judge someone else. Express your frustration and anger. God is the most offended party each and every time. That's what Paul says. God cannot be mocked. And that's why he picks up this agricultural theme, which he, picked, which he started last week with the fruit of the Spirit. And now last week I explained... The fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit's fruit. It's, it's not our fruit. We don't manufacture it ourselves. The Spirit is the one who has to give and produce this fruit in us. And so what Paul is saying is all those who have been made alive by the Spirit are capable of sowing to the Spirit and reaping eternal life. In so doing, they're sowing in this new age, this new life that we've been given. But friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then you're not sowing to the Spirit. Uh, no, the, the Spirit has to make you alive. And so, friend, I would just say, plead with the Spirit. Uh, Jesus spoke of the Spirit's role doing this very work in John 14, 16 through 17. He said he would ask the Father to send the Helper who would be with us forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But two chapters later, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit would come and convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So friend, if you're here this morning, and maybe you're not a Christian, my hope and prayer is that you are feeling the conviction from the Holy Spirit. My hope and prayer is that you would be willing to see your need to repent and trust in Christ so as to sow to the Spirit. If you have questions about what that looks like, I would love to speak with you after the service. I'll be standing in the back. But for Christians, notice how this sowing and reaping also plays out in our life. Christian, do you shape your energies and life around sowing to the Spirit, around doing good to all? That's been the flow of the passage, has it not been? Helping others, loving others. And I can say I've been so encouraged in seeing the way that this church has loved each other. And already in community groups, just seeing the way that we're seeing people just loving and caring for each other. Just the silent people who are seeking to love other members and serve them. And my prayer, and I ask you to join with me in praying that those community groups will continue to be places where we are not only loving each other, yes, the household of faith, but also others as well. 
as I prayed in the, in the pastoral prayer, that those would be opportunities for evangelism and outreach to get to know those around us. Well, let us do good to all, Paul says, especially those of the household of faith. Well, that closes his argument of the letter proper, as it were, but now he's going to pick up the pin for himself and close out the letter. So look at verses 11 through 18, warning and boasting. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Well, again, Paul takes the pen for himself, and there's different thoughts as to why it is he writes with such big letters. There's one legend that he had poor eyesight. Others say that he wasn't a trained scribe, and so he just wasn't very good at writing nice and neat like a scribe. Others say this is the ancient equivalent of a bold font. We don't know for sure. But what we do see is Paul, his passion throughout this whole letter, is still driving here. As he closes out his letter, he takes the pen for his final plea. Now, Paul's introductions and conclusions are often so important, and they give you insights into the letter. And here, particularly, is one of Paul's longest, if not his longest, conclusion. And so first, he's going to restate some of his key points negatively, and then then he'll seek to address them positively, what his goal is. So first, he addresses once again these agitators in verses 12 through 14. He writes of their boasting in the flesh, quite literally in the removal of the flesh in circumcision. And then he writes, in the context of their boasting, the reason that they're boasting is because they don't want to suffer persecution. Earlier in the letter, he said the cross was an offense. These are seeking to avoid the offense of the cross. I see, for many Jews who came to trust in Christ, they were probably removed from the synagogue, which was like being removed from your whole social network. And so some, perhaps, it seems, Paul thinks, that the reason they were still continuing and pressing people to obey the Mosaic law requirements was so that way they just wouldn't have to deal with that. They could keep going on and and keep things low-key, as it were. But Paul says... They're still not keeping the law. It's not as though they're trying to convince you to be circumcised means all of a sudden they're perfect. No, no one is capable of doing this keeping of the law perfectly. So really their issue was they just didn't want to suffer for the truth. And I think that's a good reminder for us Christians to realize that there's always a chance in our lifetime that we could be persecuted for the gospel. Of course, we pray for our national leaders that they would lead in such a way that we would get to live peaceful and quiet lives. And we are grateful for the fact that we have many uh, cases on the books that allow for a strong precedent for freedom of religion and speech. But I'm sure you've heard of florists and cake bakers. I'm sure you've heard of, of the many attacks on First Amendment rights. Don't be surprised if the attacks continue. But the question for us is, <clears throat> are we ready 
Are we seeking to be ready to suffer for the gospel? We hear about people who are suffering and persecuted for their faith, but I don't know if you're like me, it seems like this far off thing. It's in a distant land. And friends, I just think we need to be so careful that we prepare. Uh, in, in my undergraduate church history class, the, the professor was not one who thought very highly of some of the earlier martyrs in the church. And one of the things he, he mentioned was telling the story of the, some of the earliest martyrs. Uh, two of the earliest ones we have record of was in the year 203 AD, two women, one named Perpetua and the other Felicitas. Perpetua was a young, well-to-do woman who was nursing her infant child, and she was arrested for converting to Christianity. Her father pleaded with her to abandon, or at least to say that she abandoned her claim to faith, so that way she could continue to raise her child, but she refused. Her friend and, and helper or, or nursemaid, uh, Felicitas, was also pregnant at the time, and the trial was dragging out, hoping that these women would, would recant. But Felicitas would not recant. What her fear was, was not suffering, but her fear was that her being pregnant would mean she wouldn't get to go suffer. The two women prayed that she would give birth before the date of the trial, and she did. And she was able to give her new baby up for adoption. But as she gave birth, the soldiers mocked her as she groaned in pain of labor. And the soldiers said, how are you going to face the arena if you can't handle giving birth? And Felicitas's response was stunning. She said, now my sufferings are only mine, but when I face the beasts, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me, since I shall be suffering for him. Reminded of Paul's words, filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Well, church historian Justo Gonzalez recounts this story this way. He says, Perpetua and Felicitas were placed in the arena and they were attacked by a crazed cow, likely a bull. And having been hit and thrown by the animal, Perpetua asked to retie her hair because hair that was strewn and loose was a sign of mourning. But she said, this is a joyful day. And so finally, the two women were bleeding. They went and stood in the middle of the arena, bid each other farewell with a kiss of peace, and were killed by the sword. So friends, I'll repeat the question that my professor raised in that class. Should they have said whatever was needed just to avoid suffering? I mean, wouldn't it have been better for them to raise their kids themselves? Should we be willing to suffer? How far can we go in bending on our profession of faith? Paul seems to tie these agitators and their willingness to abandon the gospel, because that's what is at hook here. At the beginning of the letter, they have abandoned the gospel. They have turned away from Christ. They have rejected the fact that God the Son, becoming incarnate, living the life that sinners should have lived, and yet dying the death that they deserve to die. But that wasn't enough. So friends, are we willing to suffer? At what point do we just bend? Well, I think Paul's pretty clear. And I think John it puts it even clearer in Revelation 12, 11. The way that God's people overcame the dragon was by the word of their testimony, that is, the message of the gospel, their testimony that Jesus is the Christ, and because they loved not their lives even unto death. So friends, part of us as Christians, walking with each other, encouraging each other, helping each other, carrying each other's burdens is preparing ourselves. Now, it may be that none of us ever face persecution like that, but how can we be praying for those around the world who do? Well, Paul has laid out this self-preserving instinct behind these agitators. 
And then he turns to say, their boasting in the flesh is all about their wanting to preserve themselves. And then he summarizes his and the Christian aim, which is instead that we must boast in Christ alone. Uh, Once again, Paul writes in 14 and 15, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The NIV lacks the four. There's a four. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. By putting those two statements that way, what Paul is doing is he's putting in parallel for us what we see in verse 14 is being restated and and grounded in verse 15. So in other words, what Paul said is the old covenant Jewish sign of circumcision means nothing. It is parallel with worldliness to which he has been crucified. It's meaningless. Now that the new creation has come, circumcision is worldly. It's meaningless. It serves no point. And the entire system which seeks to support it and build it up, Paul has been crucified to that. He is very bold. The only thing that matters is the new creation, wrought in the blood of Christ and brought by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says, to all those who follow this rule, that is, all those who see that the only thing that matters is the new creation in Christ and the Holy Spirit, peace be upon them. Now, depending upon your translation, the them could be a little confusing because the syntax of this verse is a little challenging on top of the fact that the Greek word chi has a bunch of different ranges of meaning. So maybe some of you have a translation in front of you that reads, peace and mercy upon them and the Israel of God. Others might have a translation that reads, peace and mercy upon them, even the Israel of God. I actually think that the NIV 2011 here does a perfect job, and it says, dash. This is, the technical word is called an appositional phrase. These two things are equal. Now, the reason I would say this is because Paul's entire argument throughout this whole letter has been driving at the singularity of God's people. For him to change gears here and announce there's two people would deny what he explicitly said back in Galatians 3, 26. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. So Paul says, peace be upon those who abide by this new creation rule. That is the Israel of God calling those of faith, those true children of Abraham, which he spoke of back in Galatians 3, 29, the true Israel of God. And that shouldn't shock us. John the Baptist even said, why boast about being children of Abraham? I mean, God can make the rocks children of Abraham. But depending upon what church tradition you've grown up in, maybe that is a pretty radical thing to hear. Uh, Maybe for some of you, like me, grew up in a church tradition which saw Israel is Israel and the church is the church and never the twain shall meet. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I imagine some of you in this room, if not many of you in this room, grew up with that. Uh, Fifteen years ago, Bethany adopted a new doctrinal statement that articulates that position. It was the first time in the church's 126-year history that they had done so, Um, but it was a very popular doctrine. It really got popularized starting in 1909 in the Schofield Reference Bible, and I would love to have long conversations with you about this, but I'll say this simply. Uh, This is an area where Christians agree to disagree. So you might put these pieces together a little differently. Uh, My charge is we want to always be submitting our theology to the text, not coming to the text with a particular theology. And I would say that Paul's whole thrust in the central part of this book is read the Old Testament aright, which is through the lens of Christ. 
If you read the Old Testament and build a foundation and then make Jesus fit on it, Paul says, you're doing it wrong. We have to go back and read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. So Paul's whole argument through this letter has driven unswervingly to the unity of the people of God in Christ. For him to introduce a second people just doesn't make sense here. And his whole closing argument is meant to remove any chance of there being confusion. Because that's what he says. There is no ethnic distinction. There's no physical mark. Circumcision and uncircumcision is nothing. He says, I bear in my body the only marks that matter. Which are the marks of his being persecuted for the sake of the cross. Paul then has returned to what he said back in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And so it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is the center point and the centerpiece of the whole argument. Or, as I put the argument for this passage is this, friends, boasting in the cross alone frees us to bear one another's burdens, to sow to the Spirit, and to live according to this new creation rule. Because all those who've been made alive by the Spirit all those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, those who've been born again, spiritually resurrected, the only definition that matters is what is your relationship to Christ. Or as I put it in the first sermon when we opened Galatians, it's this that Paul's been driving at. Friends, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing is everything. Attempting to add or keep old covenant distinctions of ethnicity and marks of the flesh, attempting to cling to the idea that some covenants remain unfulfilled or are going to find their fulfillment outside of Christ, is to look for Jesus plus something else. For the Christian, we must rest in the fact that Jesus plus nothing truly is our everything. Because true believers boast in him alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the fact that Jesus is where we put our hope. Would you help us to do so all the more? We can be so easily distracted by the things of this world. So we ask that you would keep us a people coming back again to this central reality that Christ alone is our hope in life and death. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.